when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. I am here with Michael Cowan and Mallory Peacock of Cowan, Rodriguez and Peacock, the trucking trial lawyers. And many of you know that Michael Cowan is also the host of Trial Lawyer Nation. So I am very excited to have them on the podcast today. We're going to be debriefing their recent win, their $17.5 million award in a case that we're going to talk about today. And so welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. It's, I'm excited. I've had you on mine. It's fun to be on yours. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And I was just telling Michael before we hit record that I normally don't interview people on the podcast, but Michael, if there's anyone I'm going to interview, it's going to be Michael and Mallory. They're so much fun. So I'm so glad to have you on the podcast and to talk about this because I know there's some cool mindset stuff we're going to get into as well. But before we do that, let's just kind of get our bearings, some context here. Where was this case tried? It was tried in uh, Hidalgo County, Texas, which is on the border between Mexico and Texas. Uh Way so down. Tell us a little bit of tell us a little bit about the jurisdiction there, Mallory. Um, so you know the jurisdiction is fairly plaintiff friendly. Um, generally, it's assumed to be that. It's been kind of changing. Um, in the last maybe five or so years, leaning a little more conservative than it used to be. Um, and uh, you know, it's mostly. Um, I think I would I would say it's mostly Hispanic. Um, you know I. It's it's generally looked upon as a favorable plaintiff's jurisdiction, but I, I do think some of that is changing. Okay. So there wasn't a, oh my gosh, this is a terrible venue to be trying this in. Yeah. No. Michael, tell me a little bit about the case. Give me an overview. Sure. Our client, Chris, uh, was working on a stand-up forklift. Unbeknownst to him, uh, stand-up forklifts have had a problem for decades and that they don't have a door behind you. You have like an empty space and it's pretty easy to lose your balance when you're operating them. And if you lose your balance, the the uh, instinctive thing to do is to kind of step to the left to try to catch your balance because you're standing up and there's nowhere to go. It's a little bitty space. If you step to the left, your foot goes out. And you, if the foot gets crushed between the forklift and something else, it gets crushed really bad because these forklifts, they're small, but they weigh as much as two cars. Uh, and so his foot got crushed. They tried to save it. They couldn't. They had to amputate. So mm. we came into the case and, uh, you know, we just think. We learned that one person every eight days in the United States gets their foot crushed on a stand-up forklift. Uh, we thought that wow. was outrageous, uh, that that many Very people outrageous. are getting hurt. Uh, so we took on the case. Uh, once we got into the case, we learned that the forklift industry has won every trial for over 20 years, uh, that they have developed a strategy that was very effective, basically saying that what the plaintiffs wanted to do, which was adding a door to the forklift, would create a bigger danger because of the forklift tipped over or went off a dock that people would get brain injured or paralyzed or killed. And so mm. we were trying to feed, trade feats for brains and necks and um, trying to trade, you know, prosthetics for wheelchairs and, you know, really trying to, you know, I don't think so much 
trying to say the the plaintiffs trying to make so much an unsafe choice is that they were making a reasonable choice and it was a hard trade off and you know you can't hold them responsible for that. So we knew that we had a big hill decline because it had been so long since the plaintiff had won one of these cases. Yeah. And so that's where I was going to go next is what were some of the issues in the case? And it sounds like they were really playing one of the themes that we tend to use in plaintiff cases, which is, you know, always go with the safer option. And so they're like, look, this is the safer option to not have the door. So talk to me, whoever wants to speak to this. And and both of you can, if you like, what were some of the main issues in the case that you had to overcome? I think one of the biggest ones is that they had kind of the industry had taken over the committee through the American National Standards Institutes that writes the standards for how forklifts should be designed. And they changed the, around the time they designed this forklift, they changed the standard to say that it's preferable to design it without a door. Uh, so they actually, you know, their, their written standard that the, uh, it's supposed to be the industry standard said, you don't put a door on this forklift, uh, preferably. Uh, now we found ways around that, but that, that was a big, big challenge. The other big challenge is that, you know, these things don't happen unless the operator makes a mistake. If the person operating the forklift is, is doing everything perfectly, um, then it's just kind of like a car. If every driver drives perfectly, there's never a crash. And Mm -hmm. and so for this to happen, our client has had to have made a mistake and we had to own that. Uh, I think the, Another thing is that everybody designs stand-up forklifts the same way. And so it's kind of like everybody does it this way. How can, how mm. can we be, you know, how can you hold us? You're trying to say that, you know, you know better than the whole industry. I think, Mallory, those are the big ones. Is there something I'm leaving out? Oh, our, no, our, guys, no. our, our, our kid wasn't trained properly. Uh, that wasn't on him, but he his, his employer, uh, he thought he was trained properly, but his employer, he had operated a different kind of forklift. He thought it would be okay to operate this one because he was towed to, but he wasn't trained specifically on this one. So those are some humongous issues to overcome. Yeah. So I am like really interested to see what you did to overcome those. Well, Mallory, uh, you want to speak to some yeah. of that or? I, yeah, I can. Um, So, you know, interestingly, sorry, we split the case, Michael and I, um, pretty much completely 50-50. So I handled all of the damages pieces of the trial and Michael handled all the liability. So he's probably better to speak to overcoming mm. the liability hurdles. But, you know, that was actually an interesting, um, a, an interesting way to split the trial. And I think it worked out really well and played to both of our strengths, um, but literally 50, 50. So I did half of the board hire. I did the part on damages. I did the half of the opening on damages. I did the half of the closing on damages and did all the damages witnesses. Um, and then Michael did all the liability stuff. Um, so it was, uh, it was actually fun to split the trial that way, but Michael could probably talk a little bit better how we overcame the liability issues. Well, I want to just pause there for a minute and just talk about how brilliant that is. Cause I think you all know that I don't love when people split, like I'm going to do Wadir and you do opening, or I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. And this was so beautiful because they got to see you, both of you throughout the trial in those various places. And the dram shop case that I constantly talk about on the podcast, we had three attorneys. We did something very, very similar. So the person who was dealing with liability and Boydier also dealt with it in opening and so on and so forth. So just want to give you kudos there. And I'm so glad that that worked beautifully for you. It sounds like it did. Um, it what was, a great idea. It, it was critical because, you know, we were talking about it and Mallory was going to be the person to ask for the money. And so how can Mallory ask for the money if she doesn't have a relationship with the jury? That's uh, right. But then I loved I loved doing this stuff too much to totally give up 
<laughs> or an iron opening. And I felt like I had something to add, especially on the liability part of it. Uh, so splitting it worked well. I don't know if it would work as well if Mallory and I had not tried so many cases together and mm, had such mm -hmm. a great comfort and had we really spent the time to, to make sure we we're on the same page, using the same language, the same strategy, the same themes. Because uh, sometimes when you try a case with someone else, you're trying two different cases and that doesn't work. But No, it doesn't. And I, I will take this opportunity too, because I, I tend to speak more to Michael than I do with Mallory, um, that Michael cannot say enough amazing things about Mallory. He just sings your praises every opportunity he gets. So I just also wanted to give you both kudos for having such a great relationship so that you can go and get these types of results for your clients because it, it to me at least it appears that there's no ego here and it's just this wonderful collaborative relationship that the two of you have created. And I'm so glad you have so. Mallory on here too because it, it, it would be such a fraud for me to claim that this was my verdict when mm -hmm. honestly the Mallory did 80% of the pretrial and 50% of the trial. So I mean, if, if anything, it's more hers than mine. Uh, and so for me to go there and all right, take well, all we'll the, have you log off now and we'll just talk to <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, and I'm not, I think I had played a lot to do with it. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm nothing, but, but at the same time, Mallory is going to, Mallory and I do things, we're on the same page, but we do things differently. There are jurors. I think she connects with better than I and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think sure. by doing it together, um, it really works a lot better than, than me doing it on my own. In fact, you know, three of my four biggest verdicts I tried with Mallory. Well, we love Mallory. I've worked with Mallory as well. You're, and of course with you, Michael, and you're both just fantastic trial attorneys. So I'm not surprised at all at this, at this particular result. All right, let's go back to our original question then, Michael. So how'd you overcome some of these major things? Well, we talked to some of the lawyers that had gotten red ribbons on these cases and uh, definitely decided to do things differently. And so one thing is that they had they had fought this whole concept that, well, you put a door on there and then if it tips over or goes off a loading dock, you need to try to jump out. And and I really didn't like the idea of making this about, you know, that they really had two reasonable choices and they made the best choice they could. And we're trying to say that their arguments aren't good arguments. And so we just said, we will accept that it is a bad idea to be in a forklift that tips over or goes off a loading dock. Now, how can we make this forklift one that's different and so where we can still win? And Joe Freed has a saying, how can they be 100% right and we still win? And so we did that. So we just we didn't claim, well, it's better to stay in and hold on and try to brace yourself. So we just really looked, and this particular type of forklift isn't supposed to be used for loading and unloading trucks. It's not designed for it. Uh, we Mallory deposed the, the distributor who sold it, and he said, yeah, we tell our customers these are not made for loading trucks. Don't load trucks. She deposed the trainer at there at uh, – our client's employer says, yeah, we do not allow our employees to use these to load trucks. So we can scratch that out. Like now that, now that's an excuse going off the dock because these things aren't used to load load and unload trucks. The other thing is they said, well, well, what if it tips over? And, you know, in their testing, they really had to rig the forklift to get it to tip over. It was really, really hard to tip it over. Uh, they had to, you're not supposed to drive around with a load up high. They had to put 4,500 pounds, raise it up as high as they can pull it to full speed, jack the steering wheel, hit the brakes. And even then it wouldn't tip over unless they unbalanced it first. So they had to make it kind of like that table where the legs, you go to the restaurant and the table's mm. shaky because one mm -hmm. leg's shorter than the other, where they had to like make one of the sides lower than the other. And then they had to switch out one of the wheels for wheel to grip more. So we had to say, look how, you know, they had to run it six times and only the sixth time when they super rigged it, could they get it to tip over? 
And I think the coup de grace on that was we got them to admit that on this particular model forklift, other people had lost their legs. But while they claimed that it must have happened, they could not point to one real world instance where one of these had gone off a dock or tipped over. Uh, so I think that was one big thing that we got lucky on. Uh, and I just want to pause there too. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because I think a lot of attorneys would go in and go, well, we can argue this in a slightly different way and with a different jury. And you're like, listen, this has been tried. It didn't yeah. work. We're throwing it out. Like, how do we make that them not be able to use that and use a completely different argument? Brilliant. Love it. The other thing is we threw it back on them. We said, look, y'all, we, we could prove that you've known about this problem since at least 1987. Uh, we didn't just make it about you need to put doors on forklift. We said, you've had a problem. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of people have lost their legs. You've known about this since 1987. Now, let's look at technology between 1987 and 2012 when you built this forklift. You want to go watch this. a movie at home. What did you have to do? You had to, you, there wasn't even Blockbuster yet. You had to go to a local video store and rent a VHS tape. By 2012, Beautiful. you can log on to Netflix streaming. You know, We talked about cell phones, the iPhone, and just on cross-examination. Like when you give an engineer a task and you give them time and money, they can do miracles. You're telling me that in 25 years, you couldn't figure this out. And we talked about different things they could have done. It doesn't have to be a door. You can put a, a seat with a seatbelt in it. And that way you're better off, you know, in all circumstances. In fact, you did that in Europe since the nineties, you just didn't sell it in the U S um, they didn't have it. a real good answer. And what you're really getting at now is the piss off point, right? So, mm -hmm. so jurors are like, you know, well, shit happens, right? That's what we're always worried about with jurors. Yeah. But here you're saying you had all of this time yeah. and the advances in technology to deal with this and you chose not to. And so now we have a great piss off point. Yeah. Love it as well. And so now we can go back into how we use some of the H2H things. So what's our ideal juror? Our ideal juror mm -hmm. believes if there's a problem, a company has to try to fix it. And mm -hmm. so I asked the jurors in Bordire, like if a company knows people are getting hurt on their products, what should they do? And like, well, yeah. they should recall it. They should fix it. And we got everyone to agree to that. And then, you know, Wonderful. when in our opening, our first witness was our expert. We Before we went into anything about this product, we taught the jury, what does a company have to do to safely design a product? You have mm. to identify the hazards. You try to remove them. If not, you try to guard against them. Warnings don't aren't good enough. You have to try to fix the problem because if you don't, people are going to get hurt. And and use literature and and showed them that this is the way to do it and then showed them what, what they did wrong. So yeah, really... so what, what Michael's talking about, for those of you who are new to the podcast or uh, unclear, is in Wadir, what we start with is the problems, basically what we kind of started with today in today's podcast. What are the problems in this case? Yeah. And then we go to, well, what would an ideal juror believe about that problem? Because we want, lots of times people will ask me, well, what do I ask in Wadir? Sorry. And I always say, what do you want to know? You always have to know what you want to know. And so we always create the ideal juror profile to go, here's the people we're looking for. They believe these things. But then Michael, you also talked about an opening where we talk about to teach what should have happened and then to show what did happen. And so there's this nice comparison and the jurors go, wait a minute, they didn't do what you said they should do. Now, D David Ball and other people have said, you don't have, you know, permission with the jury to teach what should have happened. Well, that's because most people don't do voir dire the way we do at H2H, which is we get it from the jurors first. I don't need permission. They already told me that companies should do these things. Now, you may be adding some of the other things in your opening that you could get out of them in, in voir dire, but I'm so glad that that worked for you. Let me just switch gears for just a minute. Mallory, how did you approach Wadir in terms of the damages? 
you know, um, we, this is, I think something that a lot of people have asked us is we only had an hour for, for <laughs> Vordire, which is always scary. Um, especially mm-hmm. when we were splitting it, we were both very nervous about that. We wanted to make sure that we used equal time for liability and damages, because even though the damages seemed obvious, um, he lost his leg, right. Mm-hmm. Um, the number wasn't obvious. Um, and so, you know, we talked and then there's some weird case law that's developed in Texas about um, how do you get jurors to get to the big numbers. And so it actually, we use sort of almost a jury teach me how to calculate damages method. Um, so we we took from the H2H method, but tweaked it a little bit. And, and I asked the jury, how do you figure out how to compensate people? And, um, you know, they came up with some ideas and um, the other thing, you know, that we, we did is we said the number in Fort Iyer. We didn't surprise them with Yay. it later. We <laughs> said it right away. You know, and, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, and so we did, I mean, we, we put it out there. We said, you know, we're going to be asking for $38 million and that's that. I mean, if, if that's, you know, we said it, we said it authoritatively and we, and we got the people off our cause that really just were horrified by that number. And, you know, surprisingly, um, there weren't as many people as I would have thought that were horrified by that number because we talked about how to compensate people before we threw the number out there. Right. We didn't just throw it out as soon as we stood up. Um, So I I think that that, that helped too. Well, and I think that's what a lot of people do. They're like, I'm just going to throw out this number and then see what they think. And then I'm going to throw everybody off. Who's horrified. And what I always say is you don't know what they think. It's too early. Like their brain has not, uh, they can't even process it. You've got to walk them there. And so one of the things I love that you did, Mallory, there is, is make the jury solve your problem, right? So how do we do this? How can money help? What can money do, right? And get them cogitating on that and thinking about it and then saying, well, what we're going to ask for is this and owning it. Love it. Love it. And then, you know, we didn't change the number. I think that's important too. Is, um, we we mm-hmm. thought really hard about what the number should be and how we were going to calculate it. And so we set it in Mordire. We set it in opening. We set the same number in closing. So, you know, the number flowed along the whole way and we didn't change our strategy midway through or anything and surprise the jury with a bigger number or smaller number later on. You also yeah. didn't just Great. pull the number out of the air. You spent a lot of time struggling to figure out what the right number was and why it was fair and why it was the right number. I did. I think that's important. And I think Sari has, has taught us that too, is that you can't just say shit. You have to believe (laughs) it. Right. I mean, if you don't believe it, they're not going to believe it. And so I had to come up with a number that I was convinced was the correct number in order to say it with authority. Cause if I just throw out a number that's a hundred million dollars and I don't believe it, the jury's not going to believe it either. That's right. And you know, what also reminds me of is in when we're teaching how to talk about damages and voir dire, what at one part of stage of the process, I, I say, um, especially when we're doing price versus value, right? So there's these things that come with a price tag, right? Your economic damages, those are the easy damages. And there's things that don't come with a price tag, right? Those are the, the non-economics. And I, right around that part, I teach the lawyers to say, here's the bad news. This is, this is difficult. This is hard. These are the damages that are hard. And a lot of attorneys will say to me, sorry, don't tell them that that's hard because then they won't, they won't do it. And I, you know what I said? I said, it is hard. 
That's why we say it's hard. And, and you just said, Mallory, you struggle. I, I said to my attorneys, I go, don't you struggle coming up with the number and figuring out what the right number is? Why do you get to struggle? And then we pretend it's this easy thing that jurors have to do. It's it's honest to say this is difficult and who here is willing to try. That is a whole different ball of wax when you're in voir dire. Talk to me, um, just to stay on voir dire for a minute because you know I love voir dire. Talk to me, um, Mallory and Michael, about pre-H2H voir dire and post-H2H voir dire. What has changed for you having come into this world in terms of how you do voir dire? Mallory, I'll let you go if first. Any- yeah. If anything. So, you know, sorry, before I had worked with you, because we've known each other now for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. So before I worked with you, I'd probably only done um, Vordire a couple of times. Um, And, um, you know, really, I would just kind of go off of a script. I I mean, it was very scripted. It was just sort of like, here's the questions I have. Give me your answers. And then I didn't really know what to do with the answers. I mean, it was sort of like, I got these answers. Now what? Um, I think the most important thing that I think that you've taught us about Vordire is, well, two things is one, you have to listen to the answers mm. that people give you and really reflect on the answers that they're giving and see what other people think about those answers, right? You're yes. not in a one-to-one conversation. It's a conversation with a group of people. Um, and then two, that when people tell you something that you don't like, you, you should like it because it's, it's a gift to you. Um, <laughs> For it's, sure. actually, it's actually more important that the people are telling you things you don't like than things that you do. Um, and it helps create that conflict. I mean, I guess, constructive conflict within the panel itself so that they're coming to the answers themselves. They're defending your points as opposed to you doing it. Absolutely. I, I, I was just going to say, and you you said it for me, but it's not just so we hear the bad jurors and we can get rid of them. It's they forms a group. Oftentimes they'll form around a negative answer because they'll be like, what? And so it's 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 a great thing when that happens. I always go, ooh, this is so fun that this is happening um, when you know how to handle it, which obviously you guys did. Was there any surprises in Voidir? Speaking of quote unquote bad jurors where Somebody said something just off the wall and you didn't know what to do with it or, or you did know what to do with it and handle it. I don't know that anything. No. Uh, I oh. mean, there were people that said things like, you know, basically they hated our case, <laughs> you know, uh, that, you know, they, the people should be more careful. You shouldn't go sue product manufacturers. Right. That right. Asking for this kind of money is ridiculous, but we expected that uh, from some people and that's okay. Um, well, and that's that's the other thing about Wadir. I, I hear all the time. Wadir is so scary because I don't know what they're going to say. And I'm like, you do know what they're going to say. Come on now. We do know, right? We know the negative things at least. Um, and so all that's rest is the positive. Michael, how how's your Wadir changed? You know, I think the biggest way it's changed is internal. Uh, I used to go in there scared mm. uh, that, you know, someone's going to mm-hmm. want to screw me over. Or they're not going to believe me or I'm not going to be good enough. And now I just tell myself before every trial, these are good people. They're coming in here, taking time out of their day for very little money because they want to do the right thing. I'm going to trust them to do the right thing. Now, some of them, because of their experiences in life, may not agree with me on what the right thing is. And I want to talk to them about it uh, because they might not be the right person for my juror. But I'm going to trust them. They're good people. And I'm just I'm just here to listen uh, without judgment. I don't take any notes anymore. Uh, Other people on my team take notes. I don't think about. You know, unless it's just right there, uh, but I'm not looking to exclude someone. Now, if someone says 
like I could never give this kind of money or I could never do that. Yeah, I'll ask the questions and give them off for cause. I mean, because I really, for sure. you know, like I said, it doesn't mean I don't like them. There's lots of people, you know, I'm in a world where there's lots of people that I fundamentally disagree with with things, but I still think they're good people and I like them. We just have, they yeah. just view the world very differently than I do. And so I'm, I just think of jurors the same way. And uh, it's just become but so tell me, tell, tell me why that, that that's, yeah, I love that answer that it's become more fun, but tell me why that changed it for you. Why is not viewing the jury as your enemy, which is what so many attorneys do. How did that change for th- things for you? Well, I think because now the juror that may have not have been as receptive to my message had I, and I don't, I think it was subconscious. I don't think, I think if you look at a transcript, you wouldn't see as much of a difference. Uh, you'd see some framing questions, you know, putting things in context. But I think when you're there, you would see the difference in that when the person says something that, that maybe might not be good for my case, that I'm not, I'm not subconsciously showing that I disagree with them or that I'm scared of them or that they're going to hurt me. It's just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, tell me more, you know, you're, I'm still thinking they're a good person. I might not think that they're, like I said, right for this year. And I might even tell them that, uh, depending on the, on the context. Uh, there's a, there's a confidence piece here that, it, that I'm seeing too. And I notice also that your language is very, and you've said this many times, your language is very careful. You continue to say my case, not good for my case, not good for my case, where most attorneys will say not good for me not good for me. And I think that's really important. I just noticed it. I just pinged on it when I was hearing you is you're being really clear. This isn't personal, right? This isn't about me, Michael, or me, Mallory. It's they aren't the right juror for this case. And you've been able to kind of separate yourself from that. I really, and whether I'm a good lawyer or not has very little to do with the result. I'm Like I could screw it up and guarantee I'm going to get a bad result. But, you know, I tried a case a month before that nobody's asking me to be at a podcast about, and I'm not putting on any of my firm website or anything because <laughs> the result wasn't good, but I was a good lawyer in that case. Yes, It just, the right. case wasn't as good. Um, I right. mean, I'm sorry. I, I, In fact, I thought I was going to win the one before. I mean, we got a verdict, but with a little tiny V on the one before, I'm not proud of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought I was going to lose this one. It was going in there just purely to have fun because I thought there was like a 90% chance we're going to lose. Uh I was not a better lawyer in one or worse lawyer in the other. So I just go in there. I have fun and I don't worry about the verdict when I'm picking a jury. I'm just worried about talking to these people and seeing what they have to say. I just love that. And you know, I talk so much about that. You cannot take your worth as a trial lawyer. And it's like, if I win, it's good. If I lose, I'm bad, you know, all because that's what it'll be up and down the whole time. It's we win cases that we should have lost and we lose cases we should have won. And a lot of that is out of our hands. Mallory, talk to me about your mindset in this trial or trial in general. So um, the good thing that I think that Michael has taken away, I think from a lot of work with you, frankly, um, is that we have to go into the case ready to have fun, do our best job that we can, but also not attach ourselves too much to what the result is. And, mm-hmm. um, I, Michael has, you know, constantly, that's the message that, that we're hearing from Michael, that we're working on together. And that when we go into this trial, our thought is, okay, let's go have some fun. And the good thing is that me and Michael have been trying cases together for a long time. So it is fun for us to go try cases together. We we have a good time doing it. Um, and, you know, we trust each other so much that, you know, we can 
we can let go a little bit, right? He's not worried whether I'm going to make the right objection and I'm not worried whether he's going to make the right argument because, you know, we're, we're on the same page. So we can let go of some of that stress and going in without that stress is one, we have more fun, but I think two, it gives us more confidence in front of the jury. It makes us not look desperate. It makes us look Mm -hmm. like, we got them, right? We got you. We're we're gonna we're gonna get you there. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the jury doesn't have to be stressed out either because you know, if one person is stressed out, the jury feeds on it and they start Absolutely. to get stressed out about what they have to do. Um, and so I think we went in with confidence, um, but also low stress. And I think it made the jury not feel stressed. Well, for sure, because the jury takes their cues from you, your breathing, their breathing cues, as y'all have heard me talk about. But also when you're so focused on the number, right? What do all people in the universe think about plaintiff attorneys? You're all in it for the money. Well, if you go in there and you're like, I'm here for the verdict, even just subconsciously, that's what you're going to communicate versus what Mallory's saying, which is taking, I love you when he said that, just taking care of the jury, being in service to the jury and helping them do their job because they ultimately decide not you. Michael, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I do. I, and, and, you know, this is, it's, it's a, it's almost a Zen thing. It's hard to put it all into words because it's not that we don't care. That's we right. really want to win. We really For loved sure. Chris, our client. We really believed that what happened to him was wrong. We really believe that the forklift industry needs to change. Uh, so it's not that we don't care whether we win or not. And it, not that it doesn't hurt if we don't, uh, that's right. But it's at the same time, it's an acknowledgement that we do not have control over that. So it's not our job to win or lose the case. Our job is to give the jurors the tools they need to do their job. And then they have to choose to take those. So the whole trial is about the jury and the jury's journey. And they're the heroes of the story. Um, and, and just learning to trust them because if you want someone to do something for you, you have to trust them. It's it's like my kid when when my eldest son he's a freshman in college now, but when I was on him every day and when he was in junior high and checking online, did you do your homework? You got to study. You know he fought me and it was a battle every time. When I let go and say, look, it's your life. I'm going to trust you. He struggled for a little bit, but he got it and and he started yeah. doing so much better. When I it doesn't mean that I didn't say, hey, by the way, you have a test tomorrow. You know, but. So, but my job was not to do his homework for him. My job was not to make him study. My job was to provide the environment and give him a chance to succeed. The same with the jury. You have to, you got to give them the tools. You need to be persuasive and passionate about your case, but you can't take on a, a burden that you can't carry, which is winning the case. Well, and I think when you do take on that burden and you don't give the jury ownership of it, because you're so holding on to it so, t- so tight, they never feel like it's theirs. I yeah. think I know Michael, you you had mentioned once that you just loved when I said, stop calling it my client. Right? Right. <laughs> because if it's if it's your client, Michael, or your client, Mallory, then it's not the jury's client, right? Yeah. So it's it, it, it they've got to have ownership of it and they can't have ownership of it unless you give it up and trust them to do that. Now, you know that I just had a podcast three or four weeks ago called Eight Steps to an Eight Figure Verdict. And two of the things in there I took from my VIP clients, Michael, which was, uh, who has been one. And now we call it the mastermind program, by the way, but did that, re- I don't know if you would listen to it, but two of the things I was, I was wondering if they resonated with you, Michael, which were <laughs> first one is you got to trust the jury, which is what we've been talking about. That's the first step to getting your eight figure verdict. And this was your first eight figure verdict. So I want to talk about this now. Um, but the second step was to let it go and not have it be the goal anymore. 
Has that proven true for you on this journey to this eight-figure verdict? Yes. Yeah, so sure. If you remember, I mean, I know you have confidentiality, but I can say it uh, because it was my confidentiality. I had a, a list of goals when I started working with you, and one of them was to get an eight-figure verdict. And I felt mm -hmm. even though I was making a ton of money, I'd had eight-figure settlements. I'd not had an eight-figure verdict. And I some felt somehow incomplete or inadequate because I didn't have one. Uh, by the end of this, you know, by, in the last two or three years, I didn't care anymore whether I ever <laughs> got an eight-figure verdict. And it's not that I didn't want one, but it's just like it was not something that was within my control. I mean, most of the cases I had were we were likely to get an eight-figure verdict. We were getting great settlements, and it didn't make sense for my client to take the risk. Uh, and it's about them. It's not about me. And so I just was happy with where I was. I was happy with my skills. I was in trial having fun. And so um, I didn't go into this trial necessarily. I knew it was a possibility, but it was not an expectation. And it's not something I was worried about. And so, yeah, it's funny. Once I I, we, I texted with you about it after the verdict. Once mm -hmm. I stopped caring about whether I ever had an eight-figure verdict, and once I realized that had nothing to do with my worth and value as a person or as a lawyer is when I got one. Well, Hmm, I wonder who keeps saying that, but that is so <laughs> true of all of my mastermind clients is they come in and they all have that on their list, right? I'm yeah. here because I I'm successful because most of them are successful. You'd have to be when you're paying my prices, right? <laughs> and, and they're like, but I haven't gotten this thing yet, right? Or, or maybe it's the nine figure, whatever, but it's like this thing. And so, as you know, Michael, having gone through the program, the first thing that I have you do is set it down. I say, I'm not saying we don't want it. I'm not saying we're not, we're not going to get it. But the first thing we're going to do is just set it down. Because when you're using that as a way to validate how good of a trial lawyer you are, that gets in the way of doing the actual job of trial lawyering itself. So how do you think putting that down assisted you here in this case? Because it wasn't about me. The, the mm. client, the, the case was about the juror. It was about the community, and to a lesser extent, it was about Chris, our client. Uh, yes. it, it was about, you know, an industry that is letting people get hurt, that has the power, that has the ability to fix it and chooses not to. It's about a jury that has the power to make the world a better place by sending a message that will hopefully get the industry to change and fix things. Um Hopefully get other employers to buy safer equipment if the industry is not going to make it safe. Um, and then, you know, hopefully help a, a young man that really deserves and needs the help. And so, yeah, well, I think that's the big thing there because a juror is not going to, jurors aren't motivated to let Michael Cowan have a lot of money or <laughs> put up a billboard <laughs> or a website yeah. talking about a big verdict I got. They don't really give a crap about me. Uh, to a lesser extent, I think they they sometimes care about our client. Um, but I think but, the I mean, bigger that's, thing- that's a that's the thing though, isn't it? Cause I had a client who lost a very big case and he was texting with me and he said, I just, I, it just drives me crazy that my client was not acknowledged. And I said, where the fuck did you get that idea? You acknowledged the client. You took this to case. You stood up for the client. What the jury decides to do that is separate from what yeah. you did, which is stand up for the client. And I think we just, we schmooze them all together. Mallory, what are your thoughts on all of this? So. One of the things that I think was really telling, um, and I think it tells us that we did our job with the jury right and and we didn't make it about us, is that after the verdict came back, um, the jury struggled with it. 
but it was a unanimous verdict. Um, they they did struggle. I don't. I, they were out for a day and a half ish, and um, <laughs> so they struggled with it. Um, but not a single juror wanted to talk to me or Michael. They didn't feel the need to explain themselves to us because they didn't feel like they were answering to us. They felt like they mm. were answering to the purpose of the case and. They knew that they did something big and that they did something important, but it it wasn't about getting the thanks from me or Michael, um, which was interesting because in other cases where jurors have given us big verdicts, I think um, they, they want to talk to us. They want to say, hey, we fought for you. Hey, we did this for you. And mm-hmm. this jury wasn't doing it for us. Yep. They're like, we're done here. We got this. We got this. Yeah. Um, so- Tell me what you would, what advice would you give to other trial attorneys attempting to get that eight figure verdict? So, um, one thing that we haven't talked about, um, that we, again, something we learned from you, sorry, you just, you're so, you're filled with all this wisdom. Um, but something we learned (laughs) from you, um, that we haven't talked about is, uh, simplifying the case, which we really had mm. to do here. This is a product liability case. They can be very complicated if you want them to be. And there was, um, before our expert went on the stand, he was like, oh, the case is just so complicated. And I said, if you can't explain it simply, you can't explain it at all. And he goes, mm-hmm. oh, that's a really good point. And, um, you know, in this product liability case, we used Sari's flip charts we wrote things on flip charts. We didn't mm-hmm. use complex animations and complicated exhibits um, because you can overcomplicate a case where the jury just doesn't even get it. Like, they don't even know what you're talking about. They don't know where you're going with it. Um, but I-, I will say all of my um, direct examinations of all of the witnesses that I did involved flip chart writing, um, which I thought I love be it. proud of. Um, but yes. the simplification of everything, I think, it was so critical, especially in something like this with a product liability case where you can get very, very technical and very complicated. Um, so finding a way to simplify your case um, and then just giving it to the jury and saying, jury, this is your case. This is this is mm-hmm. your responsibility and this is your case is so important, um, I think, too, to to getting getting good value on your cases. Love that. Love the flip charts. Uh, you may have have heard the podcast where John Bailey um, was talking about how he tried the whole, his nine figure verdict case on flip charts. He's like, I know about the flip charts. I just tried the whole case. I didn't use a single PowerPoint. I'm like, that wasn't the point. You can <laughs> use PowerPoints. And he's like, no, no, no. I wanted to do the whole thing on flip charts. So I, I love the flip charts yeah. because it makes you seem like a teacher. It makes it seem simple. And it it makes you feel like you know this so well, you could just, you know, write out a few things to explain this very simple thing. When we have hundreds and hundreds of PowerPoints, it's like, oh my God, this is so complicated. And when, you know, as Rick Freeman says, comp- something complicated is not good for the plaintiff. Michael. Yeah. Same. Yeah, I agree with Mallory 100% on that. We really worked on simplifying it. Like there's a danger. People are getting hurt. The company's had 25 years. There's lots of ways they could have fixed it. They chose not to. That was that yep. And and really, you know, just trust the jury made things super simple, especially when cross-examining their people, not getting in the weeds on these little bitty technical things. You know, they wanted to make a big deal that our expert was wrong. Uh, you know, it was 3.9 miles an hour versus three miles an hour, 15 degrees versus 40 degrees. We didn't go into any of that. We're just like, there's a problem. Um, 
you know, they tried to go into all this stuff in the bone mechanics, like look at the broken foot, look at the x-ray. You can see the, where the, the force sideways pushed the bone there, showed the picture, trusted the jury to get it, didn't go into every little thing. Uh, and, 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 let, and learn not to make every argument we can make. Just simple, trust the jury that our winning points are going to be good enough. And it, it really helped. Well, that's 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 the defense's job, right? It's to come and make a mess of everything. The the plaintiff's job is to have this clear, communicated theme, right? And everything connects with that theme. Their job is to come in and like try to mess it up and get into the weeds about what. But oftentimes we jump in after that and we're like, no, 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 no. And then we're running like their case versus our case. Let me ask you about opening. How long was your opening? I know it was probably longer than 30 minutes because two of you were doing it, but I don't think that it was. Uh, I think it was. I think it was only 30 minutes. I think it's oh all we my got. God, I love yeah. that. <laughs> Yay. Yay. So let me just put this for all the listeners. You got an eight-figure verdict on a 30-minute opening. Thank you yeah. very much. How? What was that like, having such a short opening? I, I think we could have gone a little longer if we asked to. I think that – I can't remember whether she was 30 or 45. We didn't take 45, though. It was a simple case, so it didn't need to be yeah. complicated. Yep, that's just along the same vein, right? The longer the opening, these two and a half hour openings, we're saying this is so complicated. This is so complicated. That's something I learned from you uh, is that if I'm telling the jury it's a simple case and then I go into a bunch of complexity, then my actions and my words are are incongruent. In addition, if I spend the majority of my opening and or trial on defense points and undermining them, then I'm saying that those are really, really important. I've spent all this time talking about how they're wrong, which really does the opposite of what we want it to do. So the other thing I think that was uh, important that we considered for the opening is I, I, I did talk about damages, but we talked about damages more in the vein of, okay, how did this happen? Rather than this is so sad for Chris, our client, Mm. these are all the things you're going to hear about how terrible his life is and how painful, you know, this injury was and all this kind of stuff, because we didn't think that we had permission yet from the jury to talk about the gruesome injuries and damages. We we didn't, we know that you don't win liability and <laughs> in board. We had to prove it to them first before you can go mm-hmm. into all of the damages. And we didn't want to look like we were trying to get sympathy really early mm-hmm. on. So we we did limit the damage talk and opening because we just didn't just from what we could tell from the jury, we just knew that and from the panel, we just knew we didn't have permission to get into all that gory detail yet. Did you get on the floor and ride around? Because I've seen you I do did that. Not. In- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did not. I did act some things out um, about you great. Know, the crushing and the where the injury was and things like that, but not, not on the floor this time because the client did not fall down. So <laughs> is there anything that you would do differently had you tried this case again? I love this. I love that this is like (laughs) taking so much time, right? I, I I don't think so. I mean, I think it came together the way that we wanted it to. And we, the only thing I think it worked out is we spent a bunch of money to make three life-size mock-ups, one of our forklift and two of our, two of our safer alternative designs. And we measured the doorway and they would have fit into the doorway, but it was like a glass door that has one of those like metal handles on the glass door, Uh like bar. And the bar blocked them. We could not get them in the courtroom. Uh, and <laughs> Sorry to laugh. 
<laughs> That's crazy. And that was a huge mindset thing because, you know, five years ago, I would have been all freaked out because my team was freaked. Yeah. Not Mallory, but my other team members were all freaked out. Oh, it can't fit in. And it had been a huge battle about whether we're going to get to use these or not. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we'd finally won. And then we couldn't get them in. And I'm just like, okay, they don't fit in. Take them back. Yep. And everyone, what, what? They don't fit. Take them back. They're like nothing. Yeah. Nothing we can do can change the laws of physics. So the only thing I would do is just make sure we measured things a little bit better before we spent that money. Uh, you know, Michael, was- you are a mindset master. I'm just saying this. I love this. Mallory, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't even know if I would use them. So honestly, I don't think we need to measure the door better because I think they made it too complicated. Again, mm-hmm. I think keeping it simple was the right move. And, you know, that forced us a little to even more simplify the case. But honestly, I think having those big things made it would have made it more complicated so i if we tried it again like it's the universe i almost feel like it was the universe like michael's really let go we're gonna give him his eight figure no 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 no. let's not you know all the things and i speak to michael obviously it was yours too mallory but michael having been my client all those years um so i just kind of love that it's almost like nope we're not even gonna allow this in here because it's gonna screw everything up um so let me ask you this. Uh, you had said earlier, Michael, when we were talking about how great Mallory is and she is fantastic. And you said, well, I'm not going to put myself down here. Right. I'm also, I also was part of this. Both of you are just rowing with confidence. And you know that I teach in my work that part of this is really owning your amazingness before you have all this evidence of it. Talk to me about the importance of that, because I feel like so many attorneys are like, no, 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 I can't say that I'm a good attorney or unless I have all the things. And talk to me about how the confidence has kind of helped you become and step into this place where you both are now and even more before the 17.5. Well, I think it helps to have um, people in your life that support you 100% and that i mean me and michael tell each other that we're great all the time so that really helps and when you hear it all the time that uh mm-hmm. y- you believe it i mean when michael cowan who's to me just an amazing absolutely brilliant lawyer tells me that i'm amazing i believe him um mm-hmm. and you know i hope michael feels the same when i tell him he's a brilliant amazing lawyer he believes me and it's because we see ourselves in each other um and you know trusting each other helps us build our own confidence, right? So the the fact that Michael Cowan, who's this brilliant, accomplished, successful lawyer, trusts me to do this gives me the all the confidence I need. So I think having someone have your back 100% really helps. I just love this relationship so much. Michael? I think the hardest uh, person I've ever had to persuade on this has been myself. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's been a very difficult journey for me personally to believe that I'm great. Uh, I didn't, I would self-sabotage a lot. I definitely had a big saboteur voice in my head. Uh, it took a lot of work with you, a lot of therapy. Um, frankly, a lot of not just winning other trials, but losing other trials and surviving, um, I think has been an important part of my journey to realize that, uh, that you can go there, you can do everything perfect and it's not about you. So that, you know, both having succeeded and failed, I think we're both really important parts of that. Uh, and I think without the success, you know, I don't think I would, I mean, I think if I did nothing but lose 30 or 40 cases in a row, that would have, it would have been hard to have any confidence. 
for uh, sure. But it it, it for, sure. for me it, it's a lot. It's been a lot of work. Uh, I'll be per- perfectly honest. I think the work I have done to try to accept that I might be a good lawyer. Actually, let me rephrase that. I, mean, I might be a great lawyer. I always thought I was a good lawyer. Uh, always You're thought I was lawyer. good at the law, but but to open my mind to the possibility that I could be a great lawyer to realize that there is no secret sauce that there's not like someone else out there that has the formula or has the magic thing that if, that they can do something that I can't um that has been on the hardest work but I think the most valuable work that I've done and I'm so honored to be a part of that because that is the work that is the work um because it all starts from there all the other things the skills and and the experience get layered on top of that but you have to start with I'm valuable I'm worth it. I'm, I I can do this. Well, I want to acknowledge both of you and again, congratulate you on your win. And Michael, you also are own, owed a big congratulation for Big Rig Justice, your brand Thank new you. book that Trial Guides has just released. If you've not gotten that, you can go to trialguides.com and pick that up. And you both um, have something coming up called your Big Rig Bootcamp. Who wants to talk to me about that and let our listeners know how they can attend that next July? Michael, sure. we, you. <laughs> yeah. we do a seminar once a year, uh, Callen's Callen, Big Rig Bootcamp. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's bigrigbootcamp.com. Uh, we go teach, and I do a lot of teaching, and I always share everything I have to know, but you usually are limited, you know, 30 minutes to an hour when you speak. We really go deep into trucking cases. We really try to share, and, you know, it's not about, like, I'm so smart, give me all your cases, but it's really about sharing what we know, things that are useful to try to make you a better lawyer, uh, whether you do trucking or whether you just are a general PI lawyer, it can be, it's trucking specific, but it it's helpful to all of it. And I really do encourage people that the cost is minimal. We have a little bit of a cost, but uh, to help offset some of what we spend for the food, for the event, but we really spend more on it than we take in. So I would encourage people to come to it. It's my labor of love. We had 200 something people last year. We're hoping to get over 300 this year. So uh, come join us in San Antonio on July 14th. Love it. And you are one of the most giving lawyers I know in this industry. Again, also the podcast or podcast host of the Trial Lawyer Nation. Well, it has been my absolute honor to be a part of both of your journeys and to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Have you ever wished that you knew what the jury was thinking? Well, grab a pen and paper because I'm about to give you instant access to a free training I created for plaintiff trial attorneys called Three Powerful Strategies to Help You Read a Juror's Mind. It's going to help you to understand what the jury is thinking so you'll feel confident to trust them and yourself in the courtroom. Ready for the address? Go to sorryswears.com forward slash jury. Enjoy. Enjoy.